welcome to our KPMG Financial Reporting Podcast Series, delivering fresh insights and perspectives around major accounting and financial reporting developments on ESG reporting. We thank you for joining today. Welcome to today's podcast. My name is Julie Santoro. I'm a partner in our Department of Professional Practice, and I lead our ESG activities there. In February, we released the second edition of our Climate Risk Handbook. That's our in-depth guide looking at the potential impact of climate risk on the financial statements under US GAAP. In that handbook, we ask lots of questions, questions that you can use in analyzing the potential impacts on your own financial statements. So today, we want to talk about what's new in the handbook and why that's actually relevant to you. And to do that, I'm joined by two of my colleagues who worked with me on the handbook, Bryce Earhart, who is a managing director, and Louise Santa Cruz, an executive director. And there are four topics that we're going to cover, research and development, power purchase arrangements, ESG targets in compensation arrangements, and we're going to close out with carbon credits. So Louise, to get us started, can you explain why we added research and development to the handbook? Julie, technological innovation is such a cornerstone for so many companies of their emissions reduction strategies. I can't really think of an industry with companies that are not looking to develop or update the products they sell or to streamline their operations as part of their net zero strategy. So we've added a new chapter to highlight for companies key considerations around research and development in the ESG space. And the first is to really understand the nature of the expenditures and whether they relate to the research or development phase. For the most part, under the accounting guidance, companies will expense R&D costs immediately. But there are circumstances that the accounting guidance allows them to capitalize these costs, such as those associated with acquired assets that have a future use. So think of a computer that's purchased for testing of a pilot product, but then can be used later and repurposed. And we've added a really good example about a manufacturing company developing low carbon concrete, but really the example can be interpreted broadly to help companies work through their analysis of accounting for the various types of R&D costs. The second area we're highlighting is accounting for R&D funding. So many companies are receiving funding for the research and development as part of their ESG strategy. And a key question is really, what is the substance of the arrangement? And is it an obligation to repay others, so a borrowing, or is the funding an obligation to perform R&D for others? And who has the financial risk for the success of the R&D, the company receiving the funding or the company providing the funding, because the accounting will vary depending on the answer. And we give a really good example of a startup to help companies perform this analysis. Bryce, R&D is something people are familiar with, but you're going to talk about a really hot topic right now, power purchase arrangements. Yes, Louise, it is quite a hot topic right now. Uh, Power purchase agreements, there's a lot of questions going around in the industry about them, but they're not new. But what I say is that their prevalence is growing. What we're typically seeing is we're seeing companies starting to venture into this PPA space, as it's called, that aren't typically accustomed to entering into PPAs. Uh, One of the reasons we actually see companies entering into this space is because they're looking for ways to meet their climate commitments. And one way that they can do this is through purchasing and retiring renewable energy credits, known as RECs. And what we'll get onto here in a few seconds is that 
this transfer of recs typically occurs through these types of agreements. So before we go any further, though, we really need to discuss what are PPAs. There's two main types that we see in the renewable energy marketplace right now. We see physical PPAs and virtual PPAs. The virtual PPAs can also be known as VPPAs and also financial PPAs. But for the purposes of our conversation today, I'm going to refer to them as VPPAs. A lot of acronyms to go around. Uh, so let's talk about those physical PPAs first. Although the terms are going to vary within them, they're typically going to be an agreement for the purchase and sale of energy between a buyer and an energy generator. And typically what's going to happen is that the buyer will transfer cash to the producer and in return, it's going to receive energy. And sometimes that buyer will also receive RECs associated with the energy that's transferred to that buyer. So that's where that REC comes in. Now, in a physical PPA, the energy produced is delivered directly to the offtaker. And that's a key point because that's one of the key differences with a VPPA. In a VPPA, the energy is not delivered directly to the buyer. Instead, it is going to be delivered to the regional power grid that the energy producer is on. So what we'll see in a VPPA is that the buyer will pay a fixed price to the producer for each unit of energy that's generated and transferred to the regional power grid. And in exchange, that buyer will receive the variable market price that the producer received from the regional power grid. Now, remember those RECs that I was referring to? Well, in a VPPA, the buyer is going to receive the RECs corresponding to that energy that was generated and transferred to that power grid. The other thing I'd mention about VPPAs, and we'll come back to this, is that they're typically net settled. And that net settlement is based on the variable energy prices paid and the fixed prices in the contract. So now that we've discussed what a PPA is, let's talk about the accounting, which is the real reason that we added it to our climate risk handbook. The accounting for PPAs can get a bit complex. And really the primary reason for that is because there's several different standards that are relevant to accounting for PPAs. We have consolidation topics, leases, uh, derivatives and hedging as well. So our new chapter is really a great starting point to help you understand what PPAs are from an accounting perspective. And also what are some of those accounting considerations you should be aware of, especially if your company is starting to venture into this space for the first time. So definitely be sure to check out that chapter once you crack open our handbook. Okay, so let's bring Louise back in again. Compensation and benefits is a quite a common area of discussion in the accounting world. But will you discuss for us why we're talking about comp and benefits in the context of climate in our updated handbook? Bryce, there are always emerging issues around compensation and benefits when you talk about ESG. And we've updated the chapter for new issues around share-based payment arrangements and other types of compensation arrangements and employee benefits. But the one I wanted to highlight because I think it's really interesting is that we're getting questions around how to account for emissions targets and even more specifically, a scope three vesting condition in a share-based payment arrangement. If you think about the definition of a scope three emission, it's an indirect admission from value chain upstream and downstream activities, and it occurs at sources owned or controlled by another entity, but related to the company's operations. And there are 15 categories of scope three emissions, and those include business travel and upstream transportation and distribution. 
But then if you look at the definition of a performance condition for share-based payment arrangements, it's defined by reference to the grantor's own operations or the grantee's performance related to the grantor's operations. So clearly, we need to think through whether we can reconcile those definitions and whether a scope three vesting condition meets the definition of a performance condition, and then layer on the 15 individual scope three categories. So it's an analysis we wanted to include in our book update. But I think more broadly speaking, this is not just about scope three vesting conditions. It's really any ESG-related targets in a compensation arrangement and how it's really critical to understand what those targets are and how they fit within the definition of the accounting models. Julie, we've been working on the next topic together, carbon credits, and it is so fascinating and complex. Will you tell us about it? Absolutely. I actually find carbon credits one of the most exciting areas of accounting happening right now. What we are seeing is more companies entering into commitments to reduce their carbon emissions or invest in renewable energy. So really how to account for carbon credits is is becoming more pressing. The complexity of the arrangements we're seeing and the sheer variety is giving rise to questions about how US GAAP applies. And, And really often this involves more than one standard. At the same time, there's no specific accounting guidance. There is the FASB project that we're all waiting to be kicked off. And the SEC staff is asking questions about the accounting. So what we do in this edition of the handbook is really offer you a starting point. We go through some questions that you can ask yourself as you look at the accounting. We look at it from the buyer's point of view. So do you have an asset? If yes, how are you going to recognize it? And we look at the vendor's perspective as well. Do you have a separate performance obligation? How and when are you going to recognize revenue? So let me talk about some of these questions, and there's many more in the handbook. But let's take the buyer first. The number one thing you have to do really is understand the arrangement. How are the carbon credits defined? How are they described in the arrangement Can they be exchanged? And are they actually part of a larger arrangement? And also, what will they be used for? And then if we have a look at the vendor, again, the number one thing is to understand the arrangement. What exactly does the customer get? And what can the customer do with it? Are the carbon credits retired as part of the arrangement? And if that's the case, how does that mechanism actually work? Our handbook goes through a series of questions and discusses their relevance as you sort through your accounting. So right now, in this moment, often the amounts involved in carbon credit transactions in voluntary markets are not significant. But with the SEC staff probing the accounting and the FASB starting a project, now is absolutely the perfect time for you to understand your arrangements as a starting point to determining your appropriate accounting. So to recap today on the climate topics we've discussed, research and development, power purchase agreements, executive compensation with ESG targets, and I just closed us out with carbon credits. We'd love for you to download our handbook. You can find it on KPMG Financial Reporting View with all the rest of our great resources. Thanks for listening today. Thank you for listening to this KPMG Financial Reporting Podcast. For more in-depth ESG-related financial reporting developments, analysis, and podcast episodes, type into your browser, visit.kpmg.us forward slash ESG reporting. 
and be sure to subscribe today.